Welcome to the Generosity Now podcast, where we bring you inspiring stories of generosity and whole life stewardship. Our goal is to showcase individuals and organizations making a positive impact in our communities and across the globe. I'm your host, Eric Most, president of the National Christian Foundation, Rocky Mountain Region. And I'm joined by my incredible co-host, Lori Bossert, VP in our office. Lori, how are you doing today? It is just fabulous. It's Friday, Eric, and it's just a g- exciting time. The snow's coming in Colorado. We've got lots of work to do. It's just a great, joyful time of the year of Christmas. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. As, as you commented, we just looked out the window just a minute ago and we saw the, the flakes of snow dropping and my my little guy or uh, my older son Hudson was just so joyful this morning because it's snowing. He loves the snow, um, and so it's so fun. Well, this is our season wrap up um, podcast for season one of the Generosity Now podcast. And in this this wrap up podcast, we wanted to do a highlight reel, so to speak, of some of our favorite episodes. We cannot highlight all the great conversation as much as we'd like to, but we thought that we would give you a sample of some of our favorites. One of the reasons that we wanted to start the Generosity Now podcast to begin with was because oftentimes we feel selfish in the conversations that we have. We, we have these amazing conversations with incredible individuals. And, and man, I wish that uh, two people heard, 10 people, 100, 1,000 people would hear. And, and honestly, it's truly been a humbly thing to see that that dream come t- to fruition. Um, Lori, I was looking at some of the stats on our podcast last night. And did you know that we have listeners in over 26 different countries listening to this podcast? Eric, that's an amazing number of 26 countries, people listening all over the world. Well, generosity is truly God's word. And so it does make sense in some ways. But boy, am I grateful. That is a huge number. I just hope that we continue to grow that number because truly what we're trying to share is what it is about God's generosity. That's absolutely correct. I couldn't agree with you more. And it's our joy. It's, it's humbling to see. And yes, we, we'd love for more people to get a, get a hold of this idea of generosity and generosity now. Get, get, a, get, get a hold of whole life stewardship and um, faithfulness and, 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 all, and, and, and trusting all that God's entrusted to us. And so, um, you know, as we go through some of our favorites, we'd like to ask you, our faithful listeners, if there's been a podcast that was especially impactful for you, would you share it with your network or one of your friends? This podcast grows from listeners sharing, and we really appreciate it. So, Lori, we have had so many incredible guests, as I said earlier, but let's pick three of our top favorites each to share today. So uh, how about we, we get started with you? What is the first episode that you want to highlight and what really stood out to you in this episode? Joe Malik was somebody I had not met yet until we did the podcast. And just being able to walk through and hear the humility of Joel, how he was so vulnerable on the podcast of how God had taken him down a journey. You know, he was raised in a Christian home. He did not walk that first stage of life. And he was very willing to share that. And his personal understanding just of God's grace and mercy came out so strong in that podcast. It just, it really gave me a feeling of wanting to know him more. And I just want our listeners to know him more. So I would encourage them um, to also listen. And here we have a snippet. Absolutely. So let's go ahead and take a listen right now. And uh, and we'll be back with you in a minute. Yeah, well, I don't even, I mean, I think in hindsight, it was a calling. But the way I approached it is I just wanted to be rich. Um, I uh, thought money was cool. And I didn't want to work long. I wanted to be independently wealthy by 30, you know, was kind of my thought. And if it went anything past that, I was failing. Um, There's a few big goals there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
I think wayward would be the right way to describe <laughs> it, Lori. But, you know, it was this idea that I, I went to college in Seattle. So it was during the dot-com era. You know, we were at the end of the 90s. Um, you know, internet was just coming online and these companies were booming. And I thought that, you know, wealth and power was cool and exciting. And, uh, you know, God had other plans to take me through that journey. But uh, that's where it began. I didn't come out of college saying, oh, I want to be generous and I want to, you know, pour myself out. And I want to, I came in with all the wrong goals, you know, and which I think a lot of people do who get into finance. I think they're motivated by power and money prestige and, and sort of this, uh, you know, this people look up to people who are successful in finance, you know, for whatever reason. And I think I wanted that. I think there's just a normal American dream that we all take a big bite of when we're young. And we think that this is the path we're supposed to take of, and so I think you were there. I don't think you did anything different than what even our American churches can sometimes say this is the path to take, right? Yeah, it's dangerous for young adults, I think, because, you know, I wanted to have influence. I wanted to be important. I want to—and some of, none of these things are necessarily bad if you're doing it for the right reason. If you're doing it for him, you know, and not for yourself. But you're um, also—the pressure is put on you to be a provider, you know, to mm-hmm. be able to provide for your family, to be able to have that stability. And so even those things that can be godly and taught from the church can also sometimes get taken out of context because that is our focus. Yeah, absolutely. But I think, you know, God knew, and obviously he knows all of our days before even one of them was. So, and he's a patient God, you know, and so a, a couple of years to him is like, you know, a drop in the bucket to us. But so he's patient with us, thankfully, um, and lets us learn these things the hard way a lot of times. Uh, but that's what brought me in. And today, I couldn't be more different of a person than, than when I entered. So 22 years in, um, I really am enjoying this idea that it's important to be a good steward, but your life really shouldn't be at all about your money. Um, and usually that's where God starts blessing people, right? Um, and, and the more you make it about your money and about your stability, uh, the less fulfilled you become. And the more you make it about other people, um, you know, the more uh, fulfilled and that kind of deep sense of joy. I'm not talking about happiness, which I think is what we're kind of taught to pursue um, through this, this retirement dream, as we'll get into a little bit. I'm talking about fulfillment, joy, purpose, mission. You know, I think those are better words. Um, so today, uh, that's what I'm here to do. And, and I feel like God's got me here for that reason, brought me through, taught me a lot of things that I needed to, to learn to speak from experience, you know. And that's, that's quite a shift, right, from when you entered in the industry to where you are uh, now. Was there a specific thing? I mean, you talk about just over time, but was there a, a specific thing that really changed your your paradigm from from seeking your own success and early retirement and lots of money to now um, to now wanting to make a difference and an impact and a mission? Yeah, I think you know, for me. I've got a pretty strong uh, will, <laughs> so uh, God had to take me through a process where he he humbled me, broke that will some, you know, got me to the point where I was less uh, in control and more giving my life over to him, which I think we all have to journey through that to some extent. I think it depends on how 
um, strong-willed we are to begin with, uh, how much braking needs to be involved. Um, and so for me, it was a lot, unfortunately, you know. And so I had a journey through a four- or five-year season where, you know, I just – it was a, a real significant pressing, a lot of mistakes. Um, and I had to learn that, um, you know, God – is doing a good work through this. You know, he's really good at turning broken things into beautiful things. And, and so, uh, there are times where you look back and you, and this doesn't resonate with everyone, but I think with a lot of people, you look back at your past or mistakes that you've made and you, you tend to regret them. Um, and I definitely have lived there for a while. Um, and there's always still a little bit of that. You know, I think the enemy likes to, he's very backward looking. Um, so there's always that there. But what I love about that is I've learned to see those as as who God has made me to be now. Like without those, I just couldn't be the empathetic guy that I am, the humble guy that I am. I think there's no other way to humility for me mm-hmm. other than knowing that I made the mistakes and God fixed them all, you know, mm-hmm. um, or he redeemed them all, mm-hmm. you know, and talk about being appreciative of mercy and grace. Well, now I get to take that into every meeting I have, every conversation I have. It's just a makeup of who I am now. Mm. And so I pray for my kids that they don't have to have the same journey. <laughs> you know, like, but there's, it's really hard to learn about God's mercy and grace without really experiencing it personally. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Wow, what a what a great snippet that was! Thanks for sharing that with us, Lori. Um, you know, uh, I, I guess I'm up, and so my first uh, one that I want to share is the conversation with Rachel McDonham, and. Um, it, this one kind of really started um, a wrestling within even my my own self about our stewardship of our um, our resources and how we're invested, and it was really impactful. She kind of hit me square in the face, uh, and uh, or maybe a little bit of gut punch, and um, I was super super encouraged by it. Uh, talking about faithful stewardship and, and making sure that that we invest in ways that align with God's plans and not be a, not not in ways that are opposed to God's plans. Eric, I agree how much Rachel impacted to the point where we had her come in and we hosted a women's event where Rachel got to share directly with people the same idea. And it is, it's just amazing how she is so clear in helping us understand what biblical responsible investing is. So let's take a listen to this clip. Uh, well, Rachel, your um, your time in uh, in Africa was really formative for you. But um, you're you're not you're not coming to us from Africa today, and so you're 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 in Wisconsin, kind of just over the border from the Twin Cities. Um, what do you find yourself doing today? And like, what was some of that journey from um, being you know showing up in Africa as a little kid to now uh, doing what you're doing today? You're a financial advisor. You have your own firm, and uh, tell us a little bit about what's going on there. Yeah, I would say I was a real unlikely candidate to be a financial advisor growing up as a missionary kid. Obviously, there was no family money. And when you become a financial advisor, typically no one hands you a book of clients and says, okay, here's your here's your business. So um, I only took that step of faith uh, to become an advisor because I believed God was specifically calling me to it. I knew that God was calling me to be a financial advisor, and I knew that I was always called to be a worship leader. So mm-hmm. I've always kind of done both. And for a long time, it felt like I had a foot on each side of the drawbridge and that the opportunities and and potential impact were kind of going up on both of those separate categories. And I was feeling really stretched. And I was thinking, Lord, 
what does being a worship leader have to do with being a financial advisor? Mm. And, and I was feeling this tension and this pull between these two different callings. And then finally one day, <laughs> the coin dropped in the slot and I realized it was at a Kingdom Advisors conference back in 2009 when I first heard about what they were calling at that time biblically responsible investing and how that could really be an act of worship. And it was finally like the coin dropped in the slot and I was realizing for the first time the intersection of worship and stewardship and how our stewardship can be a powerful vehicle of worship as, as we manage our resources as unto the Lord. And we do that through the lens of knowing that he already owns it all and that it's our job as his stewards to think of how would he want the resources to be used? What are his purposes? What things can we do with the resources that would bring glory and pleasure and joy to him? And worship as you probably know, and many of your listeners have probably heard before, worship and service or work are the same Hebrew word. It's really about working as unto the Lord or stewarding as unto the Lord. So my eyes were really opened at this conference to see that the way we invest can either be in alignment with God's values or opposed to his values. And I started thinking deeply for the first time about where the profits were coming from and what types of companies were in the portfolios that I was recommending to clients as their advisor. And I realized that some of those companies were in fact doing the works of the enemy, which is described in John 10 as to kill, steal, and destroy. Mm. And there were other companies in the portfolio that were creating value and blessing humanity through their goods and services. Mm. Mm. Wow. Um, uh, you're just um, you're, you're unpacking some common misconceptions about investing that I think Christians often get wrong. Uh, that that I even get wrong, right? As we we're not thinking uh, clearly enough about what our entire investment portfolio is invested in, and um, and so you've built your practice. Like you actually left a larger brokerage to actually be able to kind of craft your own um, uh, advisory firm. Is that correct? And and so that way you can infuse these ideas of biblical responsible investing and impact investing and different things into um, the totality of a family's and individual's portfolio. Yeah, that's right. I, I left a corporate practice to launch Wealth Squared, which is a team within the Eversource Wealth Advisory RIA. And our, our real thesis is that, you know, most of us invest more than we give. Hmm. Like if we think about when we're stewarding the big, big picture, all the pie, the, the slice of the pie that we have to give away is often a lot smaller for many of us than the part that we feel we need to uh, continue to retain and invest in order to grow and, and, and have provision for the future. And so it makes no sense logically to give generously to Christian causes and missional causes that are aligned with our hearts but then to retain the lion's share of the wealth and invest it in companies that are really opposed to those same uh, organizational or missional values. So I'm going to use a really specific example just to make this more uh, relatable and more poignant. A, an investor who gives generously to pro-life causes, let's say, they really are passionate about helping moms through crisis pregnancy uh, attempting to do whatever's within their power to give generously or volunteer to help save the lives of the unborn. 
may in fact in their investment portfolio with more dollars than what they're giving may have ownership in companies that are producing and manufacturing abortifacients or companies that are providing abortion services. And so we don't see that, you know, this isn't a, I certainly don't want anyone to feel, you know, judged by, by hearing this, but I do want us to be challenged in that if we're really pursuing impact and the goal of our generosity and our volunteerism is pointed at in one direction, but then our portfolio, which with maybe the majority of our assets is pointed in a completely opposite direction and, and furthering, you know, really essentially the campaigns of the master's enemy to kill, steal, and destroy, that should create a sense of discomfort and tension within us. What a great conversation that was. I hope you'll go and listen to the whole podcast. We're going to have each of these linked in the show notes. And so go back and listen to the whole podcast. Lori, you're up again. Who's who's your next your next kind of episode you want to share with us today? Greg Lernahan is another episode that I really want to share because Greg shared something so very specific um, that he has a quadrant that he shares in the podcast. And the episode, the piece that we're going to have here is him really sharing the details there of that two by two, and it it gives us gave me a visual of how this really can, we can do this investing that has that social impact and not always having to have that financial return. I just think it's really helpful to me and it gave me a lot of visual to be able to understand. Yeah, I completely agree. That that two by two that he shares, the four quadrants of financial stewardship were, were really helpful to to show us like where where's the Where's the impact that we're making or not making in our own portfolios and our generosity and, and, and how do we evaluate decisions? And so it's so good. Let's take a listen now. Greg, you've also been a speaker for the faith-driven investor movement. Um, and we'll link a video here. Um, of, of We'll link a video that you have done here. Yeah. Um, but you talked about the four quadrants of faith-driven portfolio. And I can say I learned a lot from hearing that. Um, could you describe this for our listeners? and share more about your family's movement in those quadrants. It's so very helpful for all of us to understand that. Sure, it goes back to that 90-10 tithing discussion, which is once we had uh, this event, we wanted to know how how best to steward it. And so we felt this, um, that 90-10 was no longer fair. And so literally, Mary Beth, my wife, made me put in my prayer journal, Lord, help me get comfortable with giving all of our money away. And I have to say that it wasn't something I was excited to write in a journal because I was fearful that it may come true. And I wish I could tell you that days later, it was all resolved. It took us a couple of years, literally, uh, to say this is no longer ours. This is the Lord's. And when you cross that bridge and you really believe it, which it took me a couple of years to believe, I thought 90-10 was fair. And then once you believe that, your investing strategy and everything you do looks differently. You're not investing for yourself. You're investing through God's eyes. And, and he's not looking at the world the same way we are. So what happened with us is we had been investing for a handful of years. We weren't completely in the faith-driven movement yet because we didn't know that was still emerging. And so we started through impact investing, which was doing more social change. There was no spiritual component. And through the grace of God, we, we ended up connecting very early on with the spiritual side. So we, we graphed all of our investments, Lori, that we had at the time. And so for your listeners, a two-by-two two is like four cubes. 
and on your bottom axis is the financial returns and on your Y axis up and down is social and spiritual. So the lowest square in the lower left, we, um, we, we uh, labeled each one and we called that buried talents after the parable of talents. No one wants to be there. Right, it's a, no one wants low financial, low spiritual. If you go to the right, we we categorize that as um, capitalistic, and capitalistic is where ninety-five to ninety-nine percent of the money is in the world. You're you're not caring about social re, or spiritual returns. You're out there investing in mutual funds and all that kind of stuff. Now you go to the upper right, which is normally the winning quadrant of all two by twos, and that's where you have the highest financial return plus the high, highest social spiritual return. That's where you wanna be, and we call that maximizing talents after the parable of talents. But then we had investments to the upper left-hand quadrant, and we couldn't understand why. Why would we be there? Because that's lower financial, but for the same uh, financial, or, or excuse me, lower financial with the same social or spiritual. So we labeled that after hours, days, and weeks thinking about it called spiritual led investments. And you cannot be in that quadrant unless you're led by the Holy Spirit because there's always a financial investment that's better to the right. And so after you know much debate, we sat down and said, our family knows where the Lord is. And so there, I'll, I'll categorize this, 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 this way. The upper right-hand quadrant is a beautiful quadrant to be in. And our goal as a family to have 50% in the upper left, and 50% of the companies. So if, we have a, if we've invested in 100, we want to have roughly 50 in each. And upper right is easier. You can write bigger checks because they're a little stronger companies. Upper left, every check is hard. But I wanted to talk about the two differences. And in in, we'll start from a biblical perspective is how we looked at it, which is Haiti would be a perfect example. I don't know that I saw Jesus every day until I went to Haiti. I literally saw him everywhere. I saw him with the poor, the underserved. They were praying over us. And what we know is that Jesus you know, invites us to be where he is. And the one thing we know, he's with the poor, the marginalized, and the underserved. We don't know that he's in the expensive suburbs of Chicago every day, but we know he's with the poor. And if we're not with him, we may miss him entirely. And so our faith in the Lord at this time now says, these are your resources. If I make an investment, our family does in Africa and it doesn't go well, but I was helping the marginalized and the underserved and we did our best, I can sleep well at night. I, I'm not losing sleep over that. At the same time, the upper left spirit led quadrants are where we're employing the marginalized. That's the honest truth. These are people that lack employable skills. They're returning citizens. They're undereducated, and we understand that going into it, and, and we're trying to help employ the marginalized. That's the center of our bullseye. So if you gave us an investment opportunity that only helped Ivy League people, no offense to the Ivy League community, we would rather help 100 people that are uneducated get a job because it's that much harder. Then the other thing about the upper left spirit-led quadrant is that these are companies that have great difficulty raising capital. There's no line of people running to give them money. And so we felt that we're capable of evaluating these businesses and supporting these businesses. And since on their side, when you listen to a private equity firm, and rightfully so, everything's about scale. 
in the upper left-hand spirit-led quadrant, everything's about sustainability and survival. We know there's not scale. We know that they're not going to come in and, and be bought out by the largest private equity firm in the world. But doesn't mean they can't be a good running business. So most of our deals in that upper left quadrant are, are loans uh, rather than equity because you can at least get your money back with interest. And then the last thing is uh, the difference between the upper right and the upper left-hand quadrant, the spirit-led quadrant, are the entrepreneurs themselves. Um, the humility, the only serving the poor, the no ego, um, we're better for being around those type of people. They make us better. They're generally minority or female-led, and um, we find great fulfillment in that. So that's a, it's a complicated two by two. So at the end of the day, at the top two, which are spirit led and um, maximizing talents, we consider kingdom investing in both of those. We don't consider it just in areas that are giving the full financial return. Um, we consider both because we believe that's how Jesus would do it. I just hope that you all were able to learn a little bit from that snippet. Um, go back and listen to the whole podcast it's, a, it's just amazing what Greg's experience has been in his journey in his generosity. Eric, what's your next one up? I think it has to be the conversation that we had with Pete Oaks. Uh, Pete was one I was looking forward to having on the podcast from before I even thought about starting the podcast. And it, he did not let us down in the conversation. Um, he talks about, um, in the snippet that we're going to listen to, he talks about... Um, two things. Actually, I have two different snippets that we're going to listen to um, for him. And the first thing is, he says that we need three things to flourish. You need a, um, economic capital, social capital, and spiritual capital. And I love how he fleshes that out. And then the final part, he actually talks about um, the impact of setting a financial finish line for him and his other kind of business friends and why it's so important. And and oftentimes we are asked, like, what are some of the things that you see that are, are indicators of some of the most generous individuals or what holds people back? And one thing that I consistently see, and we've seen this from multiple of our guests already on the podcast, the, some of the most generous people that we know have set a financial finish line of some form. And so let's take a listen to Pete's conversation here. I believe your son is involved uh, today with your work in some of the, the, the business that's also in, um, in prison. And so my first introduction to, to Pete and Debbie Oaks was through a journey of generosity. I was actually uh, in Alan Barnhart's um, boardroom, and my first time ever watching this, this video, here's this guy from Kansas who's getting up and start talking. And, um, and next thing you know, um, you know, there's these pretty doves flying around in this picture, and then all of a sudden you're like, hold on, wait. Is that is that is that like prison wire in the background? And all of a sudden, I see uh, and it's revealed that that you and your wife, you guys have started a business in a prison, and you first did it because you needed more manpower, but then that's also created a lot of impact. And and so. Um, so I'd love to hear a little bit about that. But then my introduction um, to your son was involved in a, a video that we did together um, kind of during the COVID years. And I got to hear some of the impact of, um, of the prison ministry and the significantly lower recidivism rate with folks that have kind of come through your life program and the work that you guys have done. So give us an overview of that um, business. And, um, and you have a couple businesses in prison now. And so what does that look like? And what's the impact that you guys are seeing? So, uh, Eric, that was in about the 2005 time frame. Uh, we were, we had a business that was located in Hutchinson, Kansas. We had a very difficult time finding entry labor, entry level 
manufacturing labor to come and work for us. I found out about a work release program where the, the prison would literally uh, bus inmates to us. We'd work them during the day and then they'd take them back at night. I did that and I went to the warden said, this is great, I need 10 more. And he says, we don't have 10 more, but we are getting ready to vacate a building where we employ inmates. And if you could figure out how to move your business inside behind the walls of the prison, you could have that space and you'd have access to three or 400 men. Well, Pete, I've heard you talk before about um, the benefits of setting a financial finish line um, and the ability and, and, and the process that you and your your wife and some other small group friends kind of did to, to kind of do that. Could you um, could you share that? I found that um, you don't have to go into the, to the dollar amounts, but the uh, but the models can be super helpful for folks as they're trying to wrestle through. They they're hearing more about people setting financial finish lines. We had Alan Barnhart on the podcast early on, and he talked about the importance of it and, and many others. And so, love to hear you to, to riff on that a little bit. 25 years ago, I went to a conference and one of the speakers asked the question, how much is enough? So myself and a few of my friends were there and we walked out in the hallway and of course we began to ask each other, have you set the finish line? How much is enough? None of us had a number. So we agreed to get together a few months later and just simply talk about that question. After a couple of days, we all came, the goal was for us to set a net worth number. So we all went around the room and 2 million, 5 million, 10 million, whatever the number was, we all set a number. And then at the end of that, somebody, some brave soul said, well, you know, to make sure we're just not floating a number out there, let's meet every year and ask each other and hold each other accountable to that number. So if you go past that number, uh, you need to be doing something about it. So year one went by, year two, I think year three or four we met, and several of the folks had, in fact, most of us had blown through our, that number. We were, we were in excess of that number. Here was a problem. It was in our privately held companies. So then we began to ask the question, how do we give our companies away? And this was in the early 2000s. And literally, I had worked with uh, Terry Parker at um, NCF and um, Greg Sperry, and we literally set up a foundation. We're starting to transfer assets and whatever, and the IRS changed the rules on us, and so we had to stop. I think that was in 2001 or 2002, something like that. Anyway, we continued to meet as a group, and in one of the next few meetings, somebody said, well, why is the first $5 million mine and everything else Scott's? Isn't it a hundred his and zero mine? And we said, yep, that that that's right. But don't we need this nest egg and blah, blah, blah. And what the what we really boiled it down to was the how much is enough question, I think, is really not about your net worth. It's more about your lifestyle. Okay. What that did was that freed us up for those who are in business. And God's given you the gift of making money and running a business. That led that turned us loose, okay, just to go do what we needed to do. So we continued to grow our business. What we what we did do as a group is we said we're going to cap our lifestyles. We're going to cap our incomes out of the business. And that was revolutionary. So for the last 25 years, Deb and I have just taken a set salary out of the business. We've increased it, you know, with inflation every year. We don't take, we've never taken dividends out. And so that's forced us to live on this set amount of money. And the, and the delta between 
what our lifestyle is and what the business has done, there are really three things that you can do with net income of a business. One is you can reinvest it in the business. Two is you can share it with the, the shareholders or with your team members. And number three is you can give it away. Those are really the only three things that you can do with the net income in a business, I believe. So I made the mistake in the 90s to think I needed to give it all away. I really changed my tune on that. I, I believe that you're, if you're running a Christ-centered business, it's having great impact. It's being a catalyst for flourishing. It is just as godly to reinvest in the business and have impact on people as it is to write the check and send it to Africa. Okay? I think you should do both. Okay? And we do both. But I, I don't think it's just businesses are not just a cash cow to send money away, but they're, they are this entity that can be used for great influence. So reinvesting, I think, is fine. With regards to personal dividends, I, I don't think cash, I don't think businesses should be cash cows to, to fund a lavish lifestyle. I think we should cap our lifestyle and then share it with our employees, share it with our Share, uh, stakeholders, if you have shareholders in your business. Terrific. They need that. And then the last thing is just being generous. We always give away at least 10% of our earnings. There are some years we give 100% away. It just depends on where the business is, where the money is, where God is convicting us to direct it at that point in time, because I'm simply the steward. I'm not the owner. So it's not about increasing my net worth. That was just a great snippet. Eric, one of the things in that snippet that just really I want to encourage people, Pete and his wife, Debbie, invited other people into that conversation about finish line. And I just think that that is so absolutely amazing, vulnerable, sometimes probably very difficult. But that accountability, I believe that God has given all of us and we need those groups. I just love when I hear that part. Um, my next one is actually Barry and Linda Rowan and their, it, this snippet is just about the intro of their spiritual journey. And I love their vulnerability and their introduction to who they are. Barry's written a book. We've been able to gift that book to a lot of people. I love the book. We've, we've read it. It's a 40-day devotional. But just getting to know a little bit more about them personally is what I wanted to highlight here. Yeah, you know, um, just a little behind the scenes of the podcast, um, before we hit record, we always actually sit down with our guests and we we pray over the podcast. We pray over the listeners who will be listening to this. So we pray over you. Um, we we were sitting down with Barry and Linda and they blessed the socks off of us, Lori. Um, both of us, I think. They um, they said, hey, before we get started, um, we have a practice of before we speak, we like to pray um, scriptural prayers. And you guys opened that. We're like, of course we're open to that. It's amazing. They actually gave us like two pages of scriptural prayers that we went from like one after another praying. And it was so very encouraging to me. And that just, that's a little behind the scenes of even when you get to hear from Barry and Linda, I hope that even encourages you. It might be a practice that, that, that we each can grow in. So let's take a listen. Sure. I was raised in uh, Idaho. Uh, both my parents were veterinarians. Interestingly, my dad grew up in New York City, and my mom grew up in South America. I graduated from high school in Santiago, Chile, and they ended up in this small little town in Idaho. And so we grew up on a small ranch. Uh, there were six kids in eight and a half years, so we had our own football team. Yeah. It was a great, great way to grow up. Uh, my first job was feeding the chickens when I was five years old for two cents a day. So they taught us the power of work from an early age. 
Uh, and we really had a, a great upbringing there. My, my dad was of Jewish heritage. My mom was Catholic. We were raised in the Catholic Church. So we, we went to church every Sunday and was a big and important part of our lives. And then went off to college and got a degree in chemistry and business and um, continued to go to church. And your, to your question about how I really came to know Christ, it was actually through a crisis of meaning and work. When I was in my late 20s, I had graduated from business school, had joined a startup company that was growing really fast, was the 110th fastest growing company in the U.S. But this question of why am I alive and by what measure will I judge success in my life just began to haunt me. And it was out of that crisis of meaning and work that uh, created a doorway for God to meet me there. And at a Young Life camp, actually in Colorado, I uh, found myself up on that camp overlooking the beautiful Arkansas River Valley and was just um, accosted by this anguish that was growing in me. And I think the, the harmony of nature reveals the disharmony in me. And I was very disharmonious and said, I'm not willing to go on living a divided life. And, uh, and God in his infinite wisdom had to uh, show me purpose in life in order to provide a context for meaning and work. Uh, so over the next uh, eight months, I read 16 books. I stopped going to church because I thought it was hypocritical to worship a God I no longer knew existed. And God had to take me down to total bedrock. Mm. And out of that, I concluded, as the lawyers would say, based on the preponderance of the evidence, I think it's more likely that God exists than he doesn't. And so I said, I'm going to put all my chips on that belief. And then it was, okay, if you've concluded that, well, what are you going to do about Jesus? And concluded that uh, he is either a raging lunatic or he is who he says he is. And I thought, no, he is who he says he is. And therefore, we need to believe what he says. And when he says, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. And that was it for me. It was uh, out of a, an act of surrender. Uh, but with heel marks in the sand that I came into a really a living, uh, loving relationship with Christ. Uh, but it still didn't answer the question of meaning and work. Uh, that was over the next eight years that I ended up writing 350 pages to myself, mostly in the middle of the night, to help answer that question. And God had to really just transform my whole perspective of work. And that was actually the genesis of the book that you just mentioned. Wow. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. Linda, how about how about yourself? Tell us about your own journey and growing up and uh, surrender to God. Uh, thank you, for, thank you for that question. Um, for me, it was more of a gentle journey. I'm going to say I was raised in a loving family. My dad, a pure Swede, um, uh, being a pure Swede, we attended the uh, and were very involved in the Lutheran Church. When I went off to college, the school I attended was a walking campus. Most freshmen and sophomore did not have automobiles, um, and the only church on campus, which was brilliant by the way, was the Newman Center. So everybody went to the Newman Center. Or didn't didn't matter what denomination or even if you even knew God at that point. That's just where all the students went. And the priest was cool. He was relatable and everyone was welcomed at the table. It wasn't until I was 29 that I first heard about a deeper relationship with uh, Jesus Christ. And it was through some very dear friends that we had met um, after moving from Boston to Colorado. And that was the beginning of the understanding what it meant to me to surrender my life, my career, my time, my resources to our Lord Jesus Christ. With a background in finance and CPA, working with um, Hewlett Packard at the time, once I made that deeper commitment, I wanted to understand the blueprint 
I wanted to understand the Bible. And God gently led me through um, through a suggestion of the priest of the church we were attending at the time to um, attend BSF International as they didn't have any Bible studies mm-hmm. at that point. And that, um, you know, I remained involved with that for the next 20 years, which took me into that deeper dive and deeper surrender of my life to Christ. Hopefully the Rowan's um, little snippet there was just a great part for you to be, to give you a desire to go listen to their whole podcast. It was just so much fun. Um, I'm looking forward to spending more time with them in the future too. Um, For those of you that don't know that we will host them here in Colorado to do others um, in-person things. So we hope that those of you local will come out to some of those other events. The next one is going to be from Eric. Yeah, so I think this is uh, this is the last one, right? It is. Um, man, uh, so hard to make the decision on on, on, on which ones to do. I, I go back and think about so many of these, and they were so, so very good. But when I think about ones that really impacted me, um, and again, that's hard to say because they've all impacted me in, in, in extraordinary ways. Well, and Eric, I think Don's really did impact you a lot, and I think part of it is God has been putting you through a process of all of this. Where are my investments? Where are things for me? Am I following things I know I believe and just not putting the energy there? And I think you and I have both been really convicted in that space of we hear these things. We know these things. Are we putting them in practice? And that's really the challenge that we have. We know how hard this can be. It doesn't need to happen today. Can we follow through on what we're hearing? I think that's really a big part of this for both of us. And Don's just a special person for me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So. Yeah, so so we're going to take a listen to Don Simmons. Um, and uh, this snippet we talk about is investing for eternal impact. And he gives us some um, steps for people to start to become a better steward investor. Um, in this podcast, I, I mentioned that I was getting a couple copies of his books and I was going to give it to to my financial advisor. Um, I have now done that. I've hand-delivered them, um, and we're having a follow-up conversations as it relates to it. And so take a listen, um, and uh, and we know that you're going to be encouraged. Don, I, as I think about um, folks that, that, that are listening here right now and even thinking about my, my portfolios, it looks like anybody else. You know, my unbelieving uh, brother and sisters. And, and we're not asking for you to provide any specific financial advice. We're not doing that here on here. But are there some, could you give some like steps of, of ways that people can um, start um, making that change, um, becoming a better steward investor, and, and maybe uh, talk to two different groups. Talk to the qualified and accredited investor, but then also talk to the non-qualified um, investor, and, and some, even just some steps or things that they should start thinking through, um, and some, you know, how can we, how can change some things? Yeah, our friends at, at one of the large mutual fund companies would use the, the three words, avoid, engage, and embrace. So I'll I'll offer three steps. Um, And the first would be uh, holy stewardship. Have you applied what you understand about holiness to your portfolio? Holy means set apart for God's consecrated use. Um, If you were to shine a spotlight on your portfolio, is it a holy or corrupt? or profane kind of portfolio. Um, And I'm sure Rachel spent plenty of time talking about that. I I would just uh, add as as my own comment, 
um, that that's where we need to start. We need to we need to evaluate whether our portfolios are are clean, if you will. It's it 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 would be hard to say today that you can't observe that large U.S. corporations are using their clout and their influence to advance their worldview agendas. Christians need to stand up and uh, evaluate what they're investing in because. As an investor, you are an owner of that and you are complicit in what those companies are doing and promoting. That's evaluate and avoid. Second would be engage. Uh, within the public markets, can you invest in, uh, in, in companies that say uh, are promoting Christian values? Can we be, instead of just avoiding, can we seek to find investments that are holistic? Uh, perhaps a real estate program or uh, a corporation that includes chaplaincy in uh, the context of the business. And there are many of those out there. Uh, you can build a, a good portfolio like that. <clears throat> what I'm really passionate about, though, is the third step, embrace. How can we embrace uh, going beyond just the avoidance to proactively seeking to advance God's kingdom. I call it PVI, proactive values investing. Um, and it might be as simple as uh, switching out some of your government bonds, uh, which are your fixed part of your portfolio for something that is a pooled fund that uh, lends money to build churches and Christian uh, schools and Christian uh, ministries. Similar rate of return, uh, similar risk profile, but your money is actually advancing God's kingdom. And then for the, the accredited investors, uh, you know, can we actually go to the ends of the earth making disciples in places where Jesus' name is rarely spoken? What a fun time to re-listen to some of our favorite and some of our just the hard-hitting podcasts. We are planning on taking the next few weeks off for Christmas and New Year's, and we'll be back in the middle of January to start season two. When we do, we'll be going to weekly podcasts. Uh, you will not want to miss the lineup of incredible guests and topics that we have planned for next year. On the Generosity Now podcast, we do seek to inspire, equip, connect our listeners for generous kingdom impact and whole life stewardship. For more information on us, please check us out online at ncfgiving.com forward slash Rocky Mountains and generositynow.org. Please go ahead and subscribe to our podcast. Leave us a five-star review and share it with your network. And today's dex doxology and the, this year-end doxology is going to come from 1 John 3.17. Lori's going to share it with us. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? This Christmas season, we just pray that you and all that you're doing are doing it through God's love. And we thank you for what you're doing in spreading God's love. Yes and amen. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. <laughs>